0: The job of the blender is to combine these elements in such a way as to produce an overall flavour. A wider repertoire of different beverages than ever before. I think one of the most interesting breweries and certainly one of the most interesting origin stories for a brewery in Australia. Single malts blends, grain whiskeys, bourbons, and more. If you want my style to be sold around the world, then unfortunately you're going to have to make a
1: compromise.
0: This is the Drinks Adventures podcast. I'm James Atkinson, and this is the show where I speak to some of the world's most exciting producers of beer, wine, and spirits and uncover trends and issues in the drinks industry today. Australian winemaker Penfolds has made huge strides internationally in recent years. The company launched its Daboo California collection earlier this year, and there's a set of Bordeaux wines to come in 2022. And in 2019, Penfolds released three champagnes produced in collaboration with the Champagne House Tino a Chardonnay Pinot Noir Cuvée, a Blanc de Blanc Grand Cru, and Blanc de Noir Grand Cru, all from the 2012 vintage and priced at $280 each. In this special episode of the Drinks Adventures podcast, Produced with the support of Penfolds, chief winemaker Peter Gago gives you the lowdown on the project and the new addition to the range. It's a champagne that's a little more within reach for many of us, a non-vintage Brut Rosé priced at $90. I asked Peter first up about his personal affinity with champagne, a wine style he's clearly very passionate about. Well, look,
1: it was something that happened quite naturally, you know, an assimilation, call it what you will, you know, what's there not the like, a nice chilled champagne? And it gradually went from just trying a bit of non-vintage through to better vintage through to Grand Marc over time. And, in fact, thereafter, even at Roseworthy as, a, as an example, I didn't do my third-year project. I started a sparkling wine project in second year, which I continued into third year. So I made the wines in the, in the in the second year and then analysed them and did all the testing and the research in the third. So even at that stage at Roseworthy, sparkling wine, I'm not using the word champagne, certainly it was Australian, uh, was of huge interest. And just, the, you know, the mechanics of it, the taste of it, the effect of yeast autolysis and all those other things, you know, what separates the good, the bad from the ugly in the way of sparklings. So bit by bit, it creeps up in you, a bit like a red wine collection or whites, you know, toe in the water, and then bit by bit, we often joke about the grip of the grape, and it was the grip of the glass of champagne (laughs) over time. Yeah, over time. And then, of course, later on in life, you know, visits to champagne, and how can you not be captured and uh, enthralled by that? It's just so wondrous, a beautiful part of the world, and they're so hospitable the people, and, yeah, you just get hooked on it. It's as simple as that. Very, very natural, very natural.
0: What else do you think makes it unique from other wine styles globally? Well, in, t- in terms of the making of it, it's a
1: little bit like fortified, yet the two are complete opposites. You know, fortified winemakers now are making wines that people will reap the benefits of, some of them, in the instance of the rare liqueur, tawnies and such, like decades and decades and decades for now you know, only last year we released the 12s, which were made, you know, almost a decade ago. So, you're extrapolating what you think will be a lovely offering years from now. You know, only just returned from Singapore and I was lucky to buy some 2008 Krug and I'm thinking to myself, hang on, that was made 13 years ago. And here we are excitedly buying it, um, you know, all that time later. So, There's the making of the wine, the base wines, there's the later processes, you know, the secondary ferment in the bottle, and then then the waiting bottle until you actually release the wine. Now, in the instance of champagne, of course, you've got everything else thrown in. You've got the, you know, the soils, the chalk, the the whole sort of temperature regime and, you know, the climes of champagne, all of those things come into it. And in fact, for that matter, from a, a bit of cultural perspective, the marginality of what's going on, you know, grapes that only just ripen, and that's the art of it, getting that tightness, that definition, high risk, very high risk. A bit like our uh, Yatana making in Australia, you know, into regions that are just on the cusp of physiological ripening.
0: And of course, it was fairly early on your career that you were making Methode traditional sparkling wines with a gentleman by the name of Ed Carr, I believe. Indeed,
1: yeah. I remember it vividly in the late 80s, applying for an advertisement to an advertisement in the Adelaide, Adelaide Advertiser for a sparkling winemaker role at New Uh, And I worked with Ed there for about four years and we made all of those Seaview Pinot Noir Chardonnays, the classic Edmund Azures, as well as sparkling sparkling, you know, the Minchin Breeze and all those other things as well. But we had a wonderful Method Champenoir cellar there and uh, we were kicking a lot of goals there in the very early 90s. Now,
0: I'm interested to know about the day when uh, you first proposed the idea, the the (laughs) somewhat outrageous idea of Penfolds making champagne to then-CEO Mike Clark. Yes, yes. Well, those were the days. Goodness, it seems
1: quite some time ago. But, look, (laughs) in all sincerity, there was a blaring gap in the Penfold portfolio, and that was essentially sparkling. And you mentioned Ed earlier, and I'll mention him again, you know, with almost two decades under his belt of, you know, traveling around Tasmania and doing wondrous things and time on lees and, you know, releasing older examples. We were a couple of decades behind. So um, the suggestion was put to Michael and uh, our current, in fact, our current CEO, Tim Ford, about the what if. And and people I don't think treated it all that seriously originally because it was unheard of. What do you mean? Champagne. sparkling <laughs> wine. No, champagne. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that idea came about. But What was a wonderful thing, um, and not just to the first, you know, contact with uh, the CEO, but when we actually launched the wine, it was wonderful symbolically to launch the 12s alongside 750ml bottles at 1912 Penfolds Minchin So, you know, what's old is new again. Hang on, we're launching a 12, well, three wines out of Champagne out of the 2012 vintage and just happened to have a bottle, full bottle, of the 1912 Penfolds Minchonbury, one century older. So for this thing called Penfolds, we've been doing business for a while, 177 years, almost 178 in a couple of weeks, and it took a century to leave that old, old minchinbury style and get to, well, what is the real thing,
0: champagne. When you um, didn't give up on the idea and kept talking about it, was it hard to get it across the line? Well, not really, because I thought they thought, oh, we'll, we'll keep
1: Peter quiet. <laughs> I think there's as much of that going on as anything else. Oh, okay, Peter, okay, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. You know, there was sort of an element of that, and there was also a little bit of disbelief as in, uh, oh, hang on, words come cheaply, but you really can get this to work, and perhaps I should talk about who we engage with and how that occurred, because that made it all, all the more plausible. Um, TNO and the House of TNO were actually our agents for selling Penfold red wines across France. So I was going across annually and doing huge global launches. Some of them were London centric, but others were held in Paris, where we'd get European groups fly into Paris to do our big launches. And TNO sold the wines in France. So, again, a provocative what if to a very worldly family. And Stanislas, the son of Alain, who used to be a broker in Champagne, thought that that wasn't such a silly idea. So, you know, the seed was sowed at that point and then later activated. But when I say a very worldly family, you know, they they own not just, you know, a a Champagne house founded in 1985, which is like yesterday. Uh, They have Canard Duchamp, they have Joseph Perrier, they had properties in Bordeaux and, for that matter, in, in California. So very global thinking, very new world thinking. And the connection, too, like Alain sold crook, their de Ambenay vineyard. You know, we we we, we adore de and that de Ambenay, the Blanc de Noir vineyard. Very rare, very expensive. Well, there was a deal done between Alain Tiener and Crook, and that's how that Blanc de Noir came into being. So everything's sort of interconnected, you know, degrees of separation, call them what you will. Uh, One thing leads to another, and sometimes things click and quite naturally occur. And the wonderful thing about this project is it's been just such this easy, natural, dare I use the word, real engagement right from the word dot. So, in fact, I've been quite amazed at how relatively easy it has been. And we'll talk about the CIVC in a few minutes, I'm sure, (laughs) because that was a hurdle.
0: Your timing must have been good as well, because if you kind of think what's happened since then, it might have been harder to get it across the line post the China situation in the middle of a global pandemic, I'd imagine. Indeed, indeed. (laughs) So, you know, the other thing
1: is everything in business is about a two-way street. And I'm sure TNA looked at uh, Penfolds as a means of their global distribution, and us helping them into markets where they aren't yet placed either. So that's the definition of good business. Everyone wins, you know, win-win. Yeah. So we we get access to incredulous fruit out of champagne and working with wonderful people and using their infrastructure and they sort of are helped by us perhaps getting a little bit not more notoriety into parts of the world where they're not yet well-known. So... You know, it has to be win-win for these alliances to work.
0: They're a house, you said, Tino, but they do also have some estate vineyards as well, obviously. Oh, yes, yes. And and in a way, no different to Penfolds. You know, in Australia, even at a Grange
1: level for reds or Yatana level level for whites, we have a wonderful balance with Grange growers, for example, where we've always, since day dot, you know, this is the 70th anniversary of Grange in uh, 2017. Uh, 2021 rather um, and right from the 51 onwards we were buying growers fruit as well as supplementing with fruit off our own vineyards so in Champagne there is a huge dependence on growers and then of course Tino have their own plantings as well and for that matter you know we've said from the onset it hasn't quite happened yet but we want them to find us some Grand Cru vineyard material that is not just Grand Cru by name, but by status and end use. You know, it just doesn't happen. You have to wait years and years to get the right vineyards. So we're in no great hurry because everything we do is about a vision and a longer-term goal. You know, you act and try and do something overnight and people fall flat in their face. When we buy something, it will be the right thing,
0: yeah. That's because, obviously, those vineyards are so tightly held, I would assume, of that level of quality?
1: Indeed, yeah. If it's up there, you can bet your bond dollar it's already been through an LVMH lens or it's already been looked at by, you know, the people who have been there for centuries and why wouldn't it be? So, you know, I dare say we would have to probably pay a premium anyway, Uh, but again, in conjunction with our friends in Champagne, um, hopefully we would get something that is truly worthwhile and look, it, it's a wonderful thing. And I may mention the CIVC earlier. I am sure they now love what we're doing to help promote the way of, You know, we're just about to release the non-vintage rosé and the other wines. We did the launch, the global launch at the Ritz Hotel in Paris. Everything was done properly. So you know, to see Penfolds, and here we are. You know, people can't see this. So I'm pointing to you on the screen, but. To see a bottle, you know, the Penfold red stamp on something that bears the word legally champagne is incredulous. I don't think we realise yet. You know, this is not us being a distributor of these wines. This is us actively being involved in their creation.
0: Tell me about the specific vineyards that you're, you're working with and the styles of champagne you were setting out to create. What should a Penfold's expression of champagne look like? What was your thinking there? Well, look, it, it's sort of analogous to what was the Yatana project about
1: initially. You know, Yatana uh, journalists, you know, <laughs> preordained it as being the White Grange, and I don't think we objected to that <laughs> name or pursuit. But with um, Yatana, and I can say the same the Champagnes, we want layers of flavour, we want complexities. But one of the key things we want is that propensity to age, the ability to be able to sell and or be accessible in youth. And you can certainly say that of Yutana, we're pouring eights around the world currently. You know, magnums of 11s, a 10-year-old, without any risk of Yutana. It took us a few years to get there, up until about the year 2000. Of course, the first vintage was the 95, released in 98. But we're sort of feeling a lot more comfortable with that project now. It's really in that zone of where we wanted to be. With the champagne project, of course you know it's many 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 years later that something that gets touraged is actually released and launched so we looked at different terraz stocks and incrementally we had more input into the making of these wines every year incrementally so let's just perhaps use the two single vineyard wines as a um, as an example of what we're doing and i joked by the way with olivia crook we co-hosted a dinner at Amagill State Winery for LVMH and Olivia Krug and I were together co-hosting the dinner. And I said to Olivia, I said, no, I took Krug from 1843 to 1979 to make their first single vineyard expression, Claude de of Champagne. We did it year one. He didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> he did. We had a bit of a laugh and a bit of a giggle, but we thought we want the Penfolds Champagne a very much top-down approach. We don't want to start off with just a regular non-vintage cuvee and then in year 15 release our flagship. We wanted to start with what we thought would be flagships that obviously will evolve over time but they're of the style. So the Chardonnay Pinot Noir, the Blanc de Blanc and the Blanc de Noir, but using the two single vineyards as I made mention. Uh, the Blanc de Noir vineyard um, is a beautiful vineyard that I wish I could take you there. It's picture perfect. It goes down a slope. At the bottom of the road is this cutting out of, you know, on the gradation, and it's just a wall of chalk in front of you. It's not far from the Bollinger Vineyards. It is picture perfect. Oh, and the vines are pretty good as well. I'll I'll just look up my notes here because they were replanted, those uh, Blanc de Noir vines, in, and I won't make it up, 2006, and then the other half was completed in 2008. Whereas the Blanc de Blanc vineyard in RVs, now these are hugely difficult vineyards to procure, but this vineyard was planted. Now, remember, we're talking champagne vineyards planted in the 1950s and part of it in the early 1960s. So we're talking old vine material, you know, by French standards. You know, their idea of old vines is very different to that of ours in Australia, where we'll quite often talk over a century old vines with Shiraz, Grenache and whatever. So to have access to these self-supportive wines, you know, it's almost like the antithesis of your concept of champagne. Champagne is all about cuvees and blending. What do you mean year one, you know, two single vineyard champagnes? But the proof is in the pudding, and, in fact, only two weeks ago, I was in Singapore speaking at the ICCW forum. I spoke at the first in Beijing many years ago. And on the night prior to the forum, uh, there were three champagnes poured, a filiponade, a Dutz, an hour, and Stanislas sent it from France. I didn't even know he had supplied this wine. I provided the 1990 big 920. I knew it would supply that one for the red uh, <laughs> section of the dinner, the big banquet. But uh, he sent across the Blanc de Noir, and my original thought was, no, the 12, it hasn't unfilled yet. You know, this is a wine built for not 2021. It's built, it hasn't done anything yet. But in the last few months, and I haven't looked at it in about two months, you're just starting to see the revelation of the colour of the petals as this wine is starting to evolve, and it looked absolutely fantastic. There were 750ml bottles, not magnums. So it's at the 2012 Blanc de Noir. So how lucky to have, have self supportive single vineyard champagne expressions year one. Now, the other one is easy, the Chardonnay Pinot Noir from Grand Cru and Premier Cru vineyards right across Champagne, and that is truly what Champagne should be. So all from the 2012 harvest released initially, and now just this month we're releasing the non-vintage rosé.
0: Being single vineyard wines, I would sort of assume that the quantities are fairly finite. I know that you don't ever talk about the quantities of how much is actually made, but um, there ultimately has to be some significant volume involved with, with what you're doing to make it worthwhile, doesn't there? Oh, yeah, it will ultimately as we make more
1: champagne and get more confident with what we're doing. Otherwise, it's just a dalliance. But... You know, even if we just poured these wines at the great Penfold dinners regularly hosted around the world, that that would tick my box. Maybe not the CFO of the company, but, uh, (laughs) you know, rather than, and, and we were, you've been to some of our Penfold dinners this year at our 70th celebration. We poured the 1996 Salon, you know, for journalists, media gathered, you know, for that. So we were doing that. We were pouring Krug. We were pouring the best of the best because you know, that starts off a dinner or a tasting just so beautifully, Grand march Champagne, and now we're pouring our own. So even if we just had it for dinners, but no, this rosé champagne, the non-vintage, it will be poured over summer. It will be poured at next year's Spring Racing Carnival. It will be poured whenever you want something in an ice bucket with a little bit of colour and champagne character of a high quality. And people love these styles.
0: How were they received from a consumer point of view? There's still stocks of the 12s around? Very,
1: very little stock.
0: Once people found out they were there,
1: even a little local example, we weren't doing much at Salador or the restaurant with it. And there's a good reason why. And I often joke, in order to sell something, you've got to be selling it. (laughs) People (laughs) didn't know it was there. They weren't asking for it, and guess what? We weren't selling it for the first few months. Then we started to show the odd bottle, and it was like bees to honey.
0: Yeah.
1: And, in fact, the odd magnum and a bit of ceremony, and now people who come to McGill quite often will start their first request is for a champagne, and certainly at the McGill Estate restaurant, you know, buy the glass or buy the bottle. They're given both options. And the same in the McGill Estate kitchen now. They can buy this by the glass or the bottle. And that's a lovely thing too. So people are usually quite trepidant, you know, it's 280 shelf. So I'm sure it'd be a little bit more in the restaurant. And that's a big risk for someone who doesn't know anything about it. So to be offered a, a champagne by the glass is a great entree into the world of the Penfold TNO champagnes. Or dare I say, the TNO Penfold champagnes. <laughs> I said to Stanislas, you know, we've got to alternate the naming. <laughs> and the the signage you know one year one year move it around a bit yeah
0: and I remember you talking when we when the 12s were released about you know your decision making process as to you know that why you chose 12 as as being a suitable vintage maybe you could speak to that and also then was it an easy decision to go with 13s and I must admit I don't know my champagne vintages as, as well as some would yes it's, it's funny, you know, uh, vintage and champagne especially
1: are deemed to be sacrosanct, you know, 28, 85, 88, you know, they, they're preordained as being great, but not all are, and some that aren't from that vintage are, you know, but it's a, a, a generalisation of sorts, but it affects pricing enormously. In recent times, of course, the 2008 was deemed to be the vintage, And I've often joked it is the vintage until the next vintage comes along and it happens to be 12. And it's going to be very, very interesting to put 8s and 12s alongside each other in about 10 years' time. And for that matter, 96, which was deemed to be a classic. So, you know, that's what's happening now. 13 is mentioned. uh, There's an enormous amount of press currently with the release of the Cristal 13 and there are some other 13s sneaking in, you know, As mentioned, Krug have just released their eight. Salon released their eight a little while ago, but only available in Magnum. But the great champagnes and the great vintages, people will pay a lot of money for, but that's not to preclude some lesser, in inverted commas, vintages. From little spots here and there. And it's the same in Australia. Mm. You know, if you look at Grange out of 2008, on paper, it shouldn't be 100 points, 100 points, and whatever. You know, Robert Parker's wine advocate, wine spectator, for a harvest that contained a heat wave that went for 15 days nonstop, relentless heat, you know, into the 40s, day and night across that period. But we picked most of our great Shiraz prior to the onset of the heat wave. We didn't know it was happening, it wasn't forecast. But if you bought red wine after the heat wave, you get a very different red wine to what you get before. And people at the time were saying, "Oh, yes, of course, Peter, of course you picked before the heat wave." Well, the great Shiraz we get tends to come from old vines, which physiologically ripen earlier, lower yield, and you pick them earlier. It wasn't because we forecast a heat wave; no <laughs> one did. We were very lucky, mm. and it's the same in these classic and non-classic vintages. You can be lucky or unlucky. We were extremely lucky to have access to 2012 material. As we were, by the way, we were given access to 2008 torage material and I evaluated them all and my preference was to suit the style that we want to head toward, 12 ticked every box. So no regrets.
0: And who are the key personalities that decide whether a vintage is classical or not. I'm very familiar with how it works in in Bordeaux and this sort of level of influence that the likes of Parker have have had in the past. Are there equivalent critics that are involved in setting up that reputation for a vintage? There are, but it it is a little bit
1: different. You know, champagne vintages are only like a vintage port declared. Uh, There have been a few more in recent times because of, again, you know, slightly the trend toward things getting warmer, which actually suits an area as marginal as Champagne, you know, rather than two or three vintages in a decade declared, now they might be going to, you know, seven or eight. I don't know. I haven't worked it out. Yeah. However, there is a declaration almost from within Champagne and I'm sure the CIBC inputs into that. Now, when you step back from that for a given year where someone makes and declares a vintage, uh, you still have to measure that up against the great classic vintages you know, like I'm sure, and I don't know this for sure, but uh, for example, if we looked at Krug and, um, and uh, Salon, just say as two great big names of champagne, uh, if you speak to Didier Dupont, the president of Salon, his favorite salon is the 88. Whereas I'm sure Olivia and others would look at the 85 of theirs as being more classic. Now, which one is better? Well, it's so subjective, and they're two completely different styles anyway. (laughs) But, you know, it's all in the eyes of the beholder and the declarer and retrospectivity. You know, uh, for a long time, 96 was deemed to be great. Then it became fashionable for journalists to say, well, it's not that great. (laughs) Will everything ever catch up to the acidity? Well, I can assure you, you know, the 96s I've tasted in recent times deliver everything promised and a lot more. So, you know, and if you think that's from, you know, gee, pre-2000, 1996, I've got to do the arithmetic. That's a quarter of a century ago mm. and we're still stepping back yet to truly evaluate it alongside the great champagne vintages. But, you know, people make those declarations, wine journalists, you know, appropriate scores and they've got to live and die by that score. And I think it's when 20 critics of renown and Champagne experts say something brilliant about a vintage that that vintage's reputation starts to ascend. But it's not like the Ten Commandments. It's not set in stone. (laughs) it's, It's debatable, always debatable. And that's what makes the world of wine so appealing. You know, nothing is set in stone. There are no absolutes.
0: You mentioned about the dosage trials earlier. It might be useful for some of our listeners who aren't necessarily champagne geeks, as it were, to maybe just explain a little bit of the background about why champagne is dosed and the outcomes that you're looking for there. Yes, yes. Well, I think to a lot of people in champagne,
1: the addition of liquid sugar and desage and other things in the expedition liqueur is of critical importance. It's sort of the last 1%. It's the icing on the cake, so to speak. Now, we've got to watch out. In recent times, there's been a little bit of a a movement toward dropping, lowering, lowering, lowering desage, almost trendy, you know, almost very fashionable, you know, the the savage dissage, the non-existent, you know, adding nothing. But on the other side, you have people say that whole amalgamation, integration of that material into the wine itself actually becomes part of the champagne character as much as the time on leaves with yeast autolysis is part of, in inverted commas, whatever this term is, champagne character. So the art is adding it, takes off that dryness, or oftentimes if there is a bit of phenolic carryover, that sugar will mask that but not really it becomes part of the wine over time and again we're looking at very long you know times between dosage and release quite often so the trick is to get it there so the wine is beautifully balanced at around the time of release now we do it with grange and you know we we do those tastings organoleptically blind We don't want to cheat. We don't want to look at growers, volumes, varieties, vineyards. We want to look at what's in the glass, in the bottle, without all of those biases creeping in. And I must admit, I love working with Laurent Fadou, with Nicolas Uriel, with Stanislas Tierno. Uh, It's usually the four of us who do these desages. Occasionally, Garance, Stanislas' sister, will come in, and you do it all blind. You know, all the bottles are unlabeled. They might have numbers on them. That's all you know. And there are different sugar levels. And then you choose the one which offers not only wonderful balance at that point, but you have to extrapolate it over time. And they've got that experience, you know, experientially. I've got a little bit of that experience from what I used to do in my former life in earlier days at Penfolds. And, look, we have a little bit of healthy discussion (laughs) as to which one is the best, and the final dosage between the four or five of us is usually a little bit of a compromise, and it's it's quite funny, you know, how we form little parties, oh, no, I prefer this, and then we have to explain it and we end up in a number. So, you know, if we were to look at the um, at the, uh, Blanc de Noir, for example, its dosage was 2.4 gram, which is almost nothing. The Blanc de Blanc only has a dosage of 1.2, and, in fact, I think we actually added less than one gram per litre because, again, there are some non-fermentables in there. We're talking residual sugar here. Now, that's almost nothing. You know, our rosé champagne, this one's seven gram per litre. You can still call things brought at around those levels, but the idea is not to, you know, say, oh, aren't we good? We've got almost nothing added. You want to look at that thing called balance and extrapolation of how that wine will last over time.
0: And being a non-vintage, the rosé is not necessarily going to sit in people's cellars for years no, either. No. And so you're not going to get, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but your thinking is with the other wines that, you know, acidity is going to soften, there's going to be more generosity of fruit coming through uh, over time. There will be other factors, yeah. This will be, this
1: non-vintage, you're dead right, will be something that will be drunk over the next year, two or three. The old bottle will be cellar, but very few whereas we know those vintage champagnes are going to be put away and the point you've made is completely valid, yeah, yeah. You're looking at fruit characters and other things as well. Uh, But not to forget the interplay of acidity and the sugar too. Uh, Our Blanc de Blanc didn't go through malolactic fermentation at all. It was zero, whereas the Blanc de Noir, complete malo, 100% MLF. So that interaction of malics and lactics and, you know, and we won't even talk about the sysinix and the pyruvic acid derivatives. They're just very distant, weak carboxylic <laughs> acid.
0: It'll, it'll go over my head if you do. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, and we, we won't go into that. But, you know, you've got all of this to contend with, but basically it's just a matter of does that mask some of, if there is any phenolic carryover, or even some less desirable yeasty character that you want to sort of mask a little bit. There are lots of things in your mind, but the objective is to make the best champagne you can. And it's just lovely bouncing off Laurent and Nicola and Stanislas, who are just 100% champagne, champagne, champagne. And that's the other great part of this. You know, I'm not talking and postulating and benchmarking against wines of champagne. We're talking, we're in champagne, we're doing it. You know, we've got the fruit, we've got the acidity, we've got a lot of background knowledge. Uh, Laurent has been in the game for many, many years, as has Nicola um and it's just wonderful you know crafting these wines with them and it is truly an interplay um a bit like our classifications of penfolds so you know the grange classification the 707 and that sort of thing yeah someone has to ultimately sign off but the team dynamic the penfold team dynamic which is purest penfolds for reds and whites but in this instance it's only one quarter penfolds because i'm the only one there now Hopefully, with time, if we can get timings right, I'll bring in Kim Schroeder and others to partake of this. But again, as I mentioned earlier, you crawl before you walk. This is early days still in a relative sense.
0: Well, um, maybe just to finish up, you could just kind of give us your tasting notes and impressions of the NV Rosé, which is the most likely penfold champagne that people are going to be able to get their hands on in the coming weeks and months.
1: Yeah, yeah, it will, it will be very accessible. You'll see it in lots of restaurants and key places around. But just a, a little thing, firstly, it's composition. People think, oh, it's all Pinot Noir, it's all Pinot Meunier, you know, it's rosé, but it actually contains 30% Chardonnay, 20% Pinot Noir and the balance 50% Meunier. I earlier mentioned it's got seven grams per litre de sage. It was bottled back in March of 2017 which is over four years ago now, uh, disgorged just earlier this year. So it's as fresh as. Um, it's got a lovely, lovely colour. When we did benchmarking tastings, you know, we looked at the, the great non-vintage rosés that were available, you know, and at one end you've got the Bidicarte rosé, at the other end you've got Laurent Perrier, very pink. This is somewhere in between the number one and number two selling non-vintage rosés in terms of colour. You know, you don't want too much salmon pink. You don't want too much of that. You know, you, you want something in there that people can relate to. And the feedback from those who have tried it so far, it's the colour they want. They don't want it fluorescently pink, nor do they want it washed out, onion-like or whatever. This is bright and alive. But the characters, in my tasting notes, I've tried to put all sorts of French descriptors. So I talk about sense of anise de flagigny violet, and all these beautiful, you know, violets of Toulouse and use some of their evocative florals and characters and flavours. But I must admit you can't help but use descriptors like, you know, the raspberries and other fruits that we have. And I saw even a little bit of Turkish delight and an element of pepper in there, Uh, but not in in a bad way, the pepper, you know, just something that like volatile acidity with the red wine is that little bit of lift. Um, quite quite a complex champagne for a non-vintage rosé style. But automatically you go to this rosé and the first thing you think of is champagne. You know, again, that elusive, whatever it is, in inverted commas, champagne character. It shouts champagne. And then later, we don't want it to be a chromatogram. We don't want to split it apart. But it's lovely doing tasting notes on these wines. Oh, and that's the other thing I do too. We, we, we write these notes together. I get on a Zoom call, Microsoft Team call with my friends in Champagne, and we write the notes together. I write them, but we compile all the descriptors in that together. So, uh, yeah, they are—they're uh, quite amazed at some of the descriptors I—I I throw their way.
0: <laughs> and how much variance would there be um, in the varietal makeup of some of the other products on the market? Firstly, and also the production methodologies. How do they vary? Huge differences. You know, some would find the addition of a red wine back as being
1: abhorrent. Others keep a little bit of skin contact there with the Pinot Meniere and the Pinot Noir to get a little bit of colour but done without the addition of a a red wine made from other parts of Champagne. So there are many variations on the theme, just as there is with rosé table wine. You know, there are so many variants And I think that's the nice thing about it, you know, there's just not one way, Um, you know, if you're looking at at a rosé table wine from Provence, it might be very different to some that are being sold in Australia now adjoining the hill of Corton in Burgundy. You know, in Australia there are rosés made from Grenache, uh, an old vine Grenache or the, you know, Pinot Noir out of the Adelaide Hills. There's no definitive style. Uh, But, no, to your question, there are so many styles of rosé champagne and, as earlier mentioned, so many colour variations. Uh, That's the other thing, yeah. But I I like our packaging of it. It's just understated. It's simple, but you can tell, you know, via the box straight away with all those lovely, you know, stars and such like, and there's no doubting that what you're about to try here visually is a rosé champagne.
0: Well, that's a good note to finish on, Peter. Thanks so much for your time on the Tricks Adventures podcast and uh, best of luck with all things Penfolds Champagne. Well, thank you. And I, I didn't mention the word G5 once. So I was going
1: to get into that, but we didn't talk G5. <laughs> that's for another conversation.
0: The Tino Penfolds Champagne Brut Rosé is available globally now, priced at $90 Australian per bottle. Visit Penfolds.com for stockist information. The Drinks Adventures podcast is produced by me, James Atkinson, with additional production and mixing by Dave Robertson. You can find complete transcripts, links, and other information on the show at drinksadventures.com.au. You can follow me on all social media platforms at By James Atkinson, like my Facebook page, James Atkinson Drinks Adventures, to be kept informed of podcast giveaways and other news about the show. The Drinks Adventures podcast needs your support as listeners. Please do us a favour and leave an honest review and rating for the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. We love hearing your feedback and it helps inform other people this is a show worth listening to. Or simply drop us a line at hello at drinksadventures.com.au.